2: Only from Rustolium. We're not trying to explain why the US dollar is the you know global reserve currency. That's not the, the, the point that we want to make and we use Riston to make is that underneath the system is a structure of private actors and how they interact with each other, and that's really what Citibank did with a certificate of deposit. Is that it organized this system of correspondent banks, which then create this leverage, this hook for the U.S. government to get its teeth into these private actors when they want to, you know, enforce sanctions or you know, use its authority in different ways.
3: I'm Heyman Hahn, associate editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 20th, 2023. Economic warfare isn't a new concept. Protectionist policies, asymmetrical trade agreements, currency wars. Those are just a few examples of the economic levers states have long used to control outcomes. But in their new book, two political scientists, Henry Farrell and Abe Newman, argue that a technological innovation spurred on by free market embracers and co-opted by the U.S. was an accidental entry point into a new era of economic statecraft, an era whose precise contours and rules are still being ironed out today as we are fighting in a so-called economic war. I talked to them about how this weaponization came to be, how U.S. national security objectives are bleeding into economic warfare, and what policymakers might focus on in trying to ensure that the economic web that the U.S. currently sits at the center of is not ravaged by its own power. It's The Lawfare Podcast, September 20th, A Weaponized World Economy, with Henry Farrell and Abe Newman. Thanks, Henry and Abe, for being with us today to talk about your new book, Underground Empire, How America Weaponized the World Economy. Can you tell us what it's about, just to get us started?
2: Sure. Basically, this book is about uh, all of the arcane and often overseen parts of the plumbing that makes up the international economy, and how those networks uh, that you know we just take for granted have slowly been turned into a, to- a weapon, a tool of coercion that states are using uh, to kind of battle the wars that they have with each other. So it's really taking. But we think of globalization and turning it on its head instead of this thing for just peace and prosperity. It's turned as a a part of how states uh, conduct coercion and conflict.
3: Abe, are you saying that globalization is a lie? The Lexus and the olive tree is gone now.
2: Well, I think we want to say that, you know, there was a naive view that, uh, of course, Thomas Friedman, you know, he had that world is flat uh, the world is a web, not a wall, you know, not the separation between great powers. And we want to say, look, that at, at the center of every web is uh, is a predator. It's a spider. Mm-hmm. And they use that web not just to disperse power, but to concentrate power. And so we do want to say, look, the, the the way globalization is constructed is not to decentralize things it often centralizes uh, so if you think about apple or tsmc or jp morgan you know there are these companies they're they're not trying to you know disperse power they're trying to concentrate the rents that they can get and now states have woken up to that particularly the united states and they're using that structure the way the networks uh, are organized to fight their battles
3: yeah very fair. Thanks for taking, <laughs> taking me on that. So I'd love to start by talking about what the preconditions for empire are. Obviously, you start your analysis with the story of Walter Riston. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what he did in the late 1900s and what you think was needed for the world economy to be able to be weaponized in the way that you, you argue it was?
1: So discovering Walter Riston was, I think, one of the moments where the book really began to come together for us, because you can think of him, uh, if you want to be pejorative, as a proto-Thomas Friedman. But I think he was much more than Friedman, which is not to say that Friedman is nothing. But Friedman is somebody who, in the end of the day, is a commentator. And Ristin was somebody who commentated and who thought, and who clearly came from a strongly libertarian, anti-government perspective. He was one of the members of the Mont Pelerin Society, which is, of course, a famous uh, society where Hayek and other people looked to try and uh, push back the power of government. Uh, Ristin was not only an intellectual, though, but he was a doer. He was the CEO of Citibank. And if you look at many, many different aspects of globalization, he was there. And I think, in particular, if you look at the uh, financial aspects of globalization. He was somebody who, as the uh, CEO of Citibank in the 1960s and even before the 1960s, he was somebody who was pushing uh, very, very strongly to uh, try to create a global marketplace, which he hoped would be genuinely free of the power of states. He believed that the more that we created these international networks, uh, which would allow finance to flow freely, which would allow trade to flow freely, and then uh, information to flow freely. He was somebody who was very interested in the information economy as well. Uh, He believed that this would be a world in which states would be fundamentally disempowered. And he did everything to try and push that. But also, and I think this is the tragedy of altruism, he was also, of course, a business man. And in order to try and uh, push forward the interests of Citibank, he wanted to have Citibank at the center of the web. And all other businesses want the same thing, more or less. Inside every lean, hungry entrepreneur, there is a bloated monopolist struggling to get out. And the best way for that bloated monopolist to establish itself is to find a central position, to find a central node in the uh, economy, which it can occupy and where it can make itself so essential that is, it is able to charge monopoly profits. And uh, in, in so doing, and this is really the tragedy, I think, of uh, entrepreneurs like Walter Riston, they set themselves up as uh, targets for state coercion.
3: Right. So Walter Riston, again, who was a banker and former chairman and CEO of, of Citicorp, what did he do exactly to create or put Citigroup in the position of the center of this web?
1: So what he did was, I think, twofold. Uh, one thing which succeeded and one thing which failed. One was that he was uh, one of the bankers who was trying to figure out how to connect the desperate demand for dollars that there was outside of the United States with the supply of dollars in the United States, because this was a time of very, very heavy regulation, where it was diff- difficult for businesses to uh, get interest on their deposits, for uh, businesses to make money. And so what he did was he invented, or he and his people right rather invented, this uh, thing called the certificate of deposit, which was one of the key pieces of financial engineering that allowed for the so-called euro-dollar market to come into being. And uh, once euro dollars uh, started getting going, this is effectively this uh, supply of dollars which is outside of the United States. Uh, Once euro dollars began to get going, you began to see a massive explosion in trade. And of course, you saw uh, various businesses begin to use the dollar as an easy currency of exchange, Uh, first of all, if you want to, uh, if you want, for example, Convert yen into uh, British pounds. Uh, There may not have been a particularly liquid market for uh, the uh, conversion. So, what you do is you convert yen into dollars and then the dollars into British pounds. And so, you have a kind of quick transaction which allows for you to uh, get paid if you are a a supplier who's trying to move goods from the one to the other country. And then sometimes it just makes better sense. And this is something we see increasingly becoming the case. It makes better sense to try and uh, just have both ends of the transaction conducted in dollars. This is easier, this is faster. And so this is one of the reasons that the dollar ascends to international dominance is because it is such an easy currency of exchange. It is uh, such a big pool. And the fact that euro dollars are there make this possible. But this is something that Ristina acknowledges directly, uh, but he doesn't really think through the politics of uh, what this means. Uh, When you're constructing this massive euro dollar market, All of these dollars, these are effectively imaginary dollars which have to be connected to real deposits in real U.S. banks. And that then means uh, that uh, the uh, fact that they have to go through uh, U.S. banks, the fact that they have to go through the so-called dollar clearing system, then means that uh, U.S. authorities have a hook into these transactions if they ever wanted to use it. And the second thing which Riston does, which he fails in, is he wants to have Citicorp, Citibank, he wants to have it at the uh, nexus of a global financial messaging uh, network. He wants to impose uh, uh, Citibank standards on the rest of the world. And uh, this uh, does not succeed. Uh, Other banks run away in horror because they recognize that this would uh, be ceding enormous power to one of their competitors. And the uh, failure of this effort Pushes other banks to start converging on the SWIFT network, which is all of us. All of us have discovered in the last few years is not in, in fact, the network that uh, you know it, it prevails. But then it too turns out to have important geopolitical consequences.
3: When you say that Ristin was responsible for making or allowing the dollar to really gain the supremacy that it has today, do you think that that story starts with Ristin, or maybe? earlier with say, like the Bretton Woods system? Do you think this is uh, a vengeance of the Bretton Woods system that apparently had failed?
1: So there's a lot of stuff happening there. And of course, you can begin, like every story, you can begin in different places, depending on what you want to emphasize. And so what we really wanted to get at in uh, our story is a part of the story which hasn't been told, which is really the way in which the centralization of the uh, world economy, the centralization of power in these banks, in the dollar clearing system, and the power that this gives to US regulators, has all of these knock-on consequences, which people didn't, in fact, until Participate. But one of the things that we discovered when we were writing this book is that somebody who is really one of the experts on the Bretton system. Uh, this is Eric Heliner. He is a Canadian economist. Uh, uh, political economist, rather, I should say, he writes back in the uh, 1980s, early 1990s, when Riston's arguments are in effect at their peak, and he says, well, hold on a moment. If we look at the way in which these uh, financial markets work, everything is concentrating in places like New York and London, and this then gives uh, this then gives a possibility for regulators to step in and to grab control of the process. So I would think of this in some ways as being, the world we live in is, in a certain sense, Heliner's revenge rather than Riston's revenge, these insights that he came up with 20, 25 years ago, which were uh, roundly ignored at the time, turned out to be the essential insights uh, that tell us about the world economy that we are in today. And I sometimes wonder what would have happened if people had actually paid attention to what Heliner was saying back then. Would we be living in a very different world now to the uh, world that we are living in, in fact? And maybe just to, to
2: follow up on what Helen said, you know, we we do not want. We're not trying to explain why the U.S. dollar is the you know global reserve currency. That's not the 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 point that we want to make, and we use Riston to make is that underneath the system is a structure of private actors and how they interact with each other, and that's really what Citibank did with a certificate of deposit. Is it, it organized this system of correspondent banks, which then Create this leverage, this hook for the U.S. government to get its teeth into these private actors when they want to, you know, enforce sanctions or you know, use its authority in different ways. And so, the the the, the just story is kind of he thought he was creating this network of banks beyond government, but by centralizing it into these few key players, it really it creates this this kind of perverse opportunity.
3: Definitely, so. I think that leads perfectly into the the Swift battle and why maybe Riston lost it. Can you tell us a little bit more about that particular technology and how that plays into the plumbing of this empire?
2: Sure. I mean, I think the Swift, one of Riston's, I think his discoveries or insights was that finance is at heart an information industry. And so he thought, okay, in order to make Kind of the advances to make real money, you needed to control the information behind what was happening, you know, in the dollars and cents. And so he had this idea of creating, it's basically like a a secure uh, post office for banks, you know, it's like going back and forth, telling which bank makes what transfers to which other bank. um, And that that way you could have a more efficient system of clearing these transactions. And, you know, you have to go back. We have these funny stories in the book of like how arcane and just, you know, like almost like a Sherlock Holmes, Victorian novel they used to use to make these transactions happen. People sitting on the phone to keep lines open. You know, it it was just, it was not the uh, picture of efficiency that most economists would suggest um, the financial markets are. And so he had this idea, okay, we can make this a lot more efficient if we have this secure messaging system. But of course, if you sit on all the messages, if you're the post office for the global financial system, you're going to be able to read a lot of mail. And other banks basically panicked and said, OK, we cannot let Citi be the only purveyor of the system. And so that's when a group of European and also competitors, American competitors of Citi, they came together and they had this idea of let's create a cooperative where it's joint you know, ownership. And that that organization, which is based in in Belgium, that they would be this, the kind of the heartbeat of the information system of finance. And for many years, nobody knew anything about it. You know, it was like it was this arcane, really obscure corporation or, you know, non-governmental corporation. And uh, it was only then during 9-11 that it really uh, takes on a new role uh, after the terrorist attacks of uh, September 11th, the U.S. government is is panicked and looking around, trying to figure out, you know, how do we deal with this new threat? And they they see SWIFT and they discover that Riston's insight about sitting on the heartbeat of the information system could be powerful for them as well.
3: Yeah. So can you tell us more about how the U.S. government in the 9-11 moment had the authority to access or tried to force its way into the swift network well at
2: the beginning you know it was an interesting part about the swift system was that it had a mirroring facility so it kept its data in belgium but it also mirrored that data in the united states in virginia and so the us government could just subpoena the organization because it had a a physical presence in the united states And that's how things start. And it's really, it's a secret program that, you know, is not really announced uh, publicly until 2006, when there's a New York Times expose that reveals that this has been happening. And that's, you know, that's actually another career story that Henry, this is how we got into this whole... this article was we were writing a different book about U.S. and European fights over privacy. And a big part of that fight is this fight about SWIFT and, and the data. And that's when we were thinking like, oh, my God, this isn't just a story about privacy. This is a story about how the global economy has been transformed and this interaction between private networks and state power.
3: So the way that the U.S. would subpoena, for instance, is is this going through, for instance, 702 I, you know, you tell one story in which there's a, um, a Reuters reporter who then kind of triggers a DOJ investigation. So when we're thinking about the weapon, as it were, how is it actually effectively triggered in the day to day? I know that it's a very shrouded kind of enterprise, but for, for folks who are trying to understand exactly how you would use the weapon, what kind of triggers and entry points are, are used regularly?
1: So we don't have any direct information on that. Uh, as far as I know, uh, the uh, the subpoenas have never actually been revealed. So uh, what we know is primarily thanks to the uh, reporting of people like uh, Eric Lichtblau, and James Risen, uh, they may have seen the uh, particulars, but of course, since they're reporters, and since they are writing primarily for a public audience rather than a legal audience, uh, they have not uh, revealed this. And also I should be clear that Abe and myself, we are not lawyers ourselves. So in a sense, what we're doing is we're trying to piece this together as political scientists and uh, so the uh, debates that we are engaged in are really debates around power and the ways in which power is used And the particular legal authorities uh, that are patched together, we are relying to uh, some greater or lesser degree on legal commentary uh, to find our way through the maze because we are not ourselves uh, the people who are going to be able to give you very, very helpful specifics on, well, this authority was used. uh, Maybe that authority could have been used instead. Perhaps uh, this authority has been uh, overused. Uh, that's, uh, That's a story that We would love to see told by people who were actual legal scholars, and bits and pieces of that story have been told, but nobody, I think, has tried to do it in exactly the same way as we have. Perhaps the closest is a uh, book by uh, Pierre-Hugues Verdier, uh, which uh, looks at, uh, it's called Global Banks on Trial, and it provides a a law professor's understanding of how it is that the financial system has uh, been used to uh, subordinate US banks.
2: I would just add the one thing that we did, I mean, I think we would agree on is just the way that the legal authority is really cobbled together and a patchwork. There's no, you know, this was not like some plot to create a legal structure that would then dominate the world. You know, it's like, Regulators are basically looking around at wicked problems that they're facing in the moment and then thinking about, you know, what kind of legal tools do they have at their disposal? And so you mentioned 702, which is, you know, something that is created after 9-11, but also there are things that go back, you know, decades of 50, you know, 60 years, IEPA or the export control system, you know, these were not invented uh, as modern Tools of coercion, but really out of a whole different cloth, different circumstances. Whether it was, um, you know, World War II issues or post, uh, you know, the Cold War, and and one of the things that we try to say in the book is that you know a lot of these things are not purpose built, and so that creates a lot of tensions and problems when they're being used. Um, I was just having a conversation with a lawyer the other day where you know he was bemoaning how hard it is to revoke sanctions uh, uh, once they've been imposed on an individual because of the way they were constructed they weren't really thought of as you know this kind of economic warfare they were part of a much bigger uh, idea that there was a national security threat and that you know th- this probably wasn't going to go away very quickly where if you look at the way the legal institutions are built in the European Union for example it's much more of a se- set of you know penalties that are 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 seen as based in economic reasoning and economic logic. So we definitely think that the legal authorities matter and that they are warping and shaping this process. Um, But as Henry said, we are not, we, we only play caveman lawyers in our book.
1: Yeah, uh, and uh, just just the, the one thing which I think both the people who are critical of these uh, measures and the people who are in favour of these measures, I think everybody agrees that the law is a mess, that all of this, thing, all of this has been patched together, as Abe says, uh, from a variety of different authorities, from a variety of different instruments, some of which have been warped and strained in order to uh, provide the uh, necessary powers, some of which have been uh, reinterpreted, some of which were more or less designed for purpose, but not necessarily designed to fit into a broader uh, architecture. So this is something that from the outside, I think, looks to the people who are targeted by it. It looks like some vast monolithic leviathan, some kind of uh, moloch or behemoth, which is uh, crushing and squashing them and which is uh, a single powerful, terrifying thing. If you look at it from the inside, it's a relatively small number of extremely overworked people desperately rushing from uh, crisis to crisis with a, oh my God, we've got to deal with X. What do we have to hand that can help us deal with X and trying to uh, figure it out on the fly? So I think uh, that this is one of the arguments of our story is this is not, as Abe says, it is not a conspiracy. This is not a grandmaster plan. Instead, it is to a very great degree, it is a kind of a accidental construction, or at least a construction where people are, they're putting together the individual pieces of it, and they don't necessarily have the opportunity or the wherewithal to uh, think about how this actually fits together, how this creates in some broader sense a system.
3: Yes, well, we we love the dispelling of the deep state myths on this podcast. <laughs> <you for> <laughs> but I do want to I do want to push back ever so slightly to ask. You know, you're saying that these authorities have existed for a while, and no one really thought to maybe put them together in this particular way before. But it kind of does go back to maybe an idea that we might be just swinging backwards in this pendulum of. Uh, protectionism versus free market trade liberalism kind of back and forth. So does the fact that these authorities can be used in this way kind of suggest that there was or is and has been a kind of intention to use um, economic statecraft for kind of competitive advantage purposes that can be traced farther back than maybe this kind of haphazard putting together of things?
1: Very short uh, answer to that, which is uh, look for our next piece in foreign affairs, which exactly (laughs) discusses that. It is exactly on the ways in which uh, we are in a certain sense we're seeing something that looks on the surface like a reversion to uh, some of the practices of the Cold War but in a fundamentally different uh, a fundamentally different world a world which is massively interdependent in ways that the economic world of the uh, Cold War was not so I I don't want to say uh, that much more about this our our editors at Foreign Affairs will be very very grumpy Uh, (laughs) what I will say is that I think that some of these uh, instruments could be used for uh, purposes of economic competition but as we describe in the book, if you talk to officials such as Kevin Wolf, who was the uh, person who really uh, ran the uh, export uh, control system under the Obama administration, it is absolutely clear that he did not think of his job as being a, a job of pushing forward American uh, economic interests. What he saw his job as being was fundamentally and profoundly uh, trying to protect the national security of the United States by uh, sort of uh, identifying potential threats such as. Uh, Huawei uh, and uh, using whatever powers uh, he and other officials could leverage in order to ensure that the uh, national uh, security interests of the uh, United States were protected. And and I would say, you know, like these conversations,
2: they go back to Alexander Hamilton, you know, like this is not new sauce for the United States thinking about, you know, that economic interdependence can create national security uh, concerns. I think what What we think is different and what is unique in the way that these tools are being applied right now is the the global or extraterritorial way in which uh, they're being used. So, you know, the U.S. has done economic statecraft forever. It's very common for it to put, uh, you know, say, we're going to close our market access to you if you don't do what we like. And that was kind of the standard story for much of the post-war period was you know, um, basically traditional sanctions. Um, But what we're kind of talking about here is where the the U.S. is conditioning access to these global networks, these choke points. And so it's not just about the U.S. market. It's about you won't have access to the the dollar clearing system or you will not have access to U.S. intellectual property when you're making products, you know, yourself in your foreign country to, to export to another third party. Um, and that's really, I think, unique, as well as the surveillance aspect, you know, that, that it's these global networks provide a window into the world in a way that, you know, we didn't have, even, even the NSA satellite systems did not have the same kind of, because of just the massive use of Google, you know, that that transforms the capabilities that a state could have.
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
3: I want to go back just quickly to the delineation between national security and economic advantage. So Treasury Secretary Yellen said uh, back in April Let me be clear, these national security actions are not designed for us to gain a competitive economic advantage or stifle China's economic and technological modernization. Even though these policies may have economic impacts, they are driven by straightforward national security considerations. We will not compromise on these concerns even when they force trade-offs with our economic interests. So I want your reaction to, to what she said here in two ways. First, do you think that there can be quite a clear delineation between national security interests and economic interests? Or what do you think about trying to separate those two ideas? Um, and second, I think one of the things that you say in this book is that it is not strategic to over leverage these kinds of economic tools, because of course, the way that you gain power in this kind of web is to be the web and to be the access points and to to bring people to your markets and want it and to have the your currency be at the heart of it all so how do you strategically balance those two different objectives and what do you think is the moment that you say actually this is turning into the wrong use of or an overextension of the the economic weapon
1: These are two great questions, and they do go together to some important degree. So when we think about economic versus security, uh, my sense is that uh, Biden administration officials are completely sincere when they say this. They are completely sincere in their desire to do this. And also, given that many of the authorities uh, that they're using are effectively national security authorities because there is not a particularly well-developed economic security apparatus in the U.S., uh, to some extent, they uh, have to do this. Equally, it's very, very clear that you see a lot of pressure from businesses who uh, see this as being a possible source of advantage for them. Uh, There is no doubt uh, that uh, businesses are uh, lobbying The US government to say, well, have you looked at this threat? Have you looked at that threat? And whatever. And so that possibly could have some consequences. But of course, we can't see uh, what those consequences are very clearly right now. You can see, for example, I think one very good example of this, which we discuss in our book, is the way that Intel, when Intel finds itself uh, making a set of uh, poor technological decisions, so that it is uh, behind TSMC on the uh, race to get to uh, seven nanometer uh, type semiconductors it uh, finds itself in a disadvantaged position. So Gelsinger, uh, the CEO of uh, Intel, begins to talk up the ways in which TSMC is located in a uh, geostrategic danger zone and suggests that there should be uh, incentives for uh, U.S. companies, uh, U.S. companies uh, that are not going to be uh, nearly as dangerous, nearly as worrying in some ways as TSMC. He later moderates his uh, language on this, but I think that gives you some uh, some understanding, perhaps, of the ways in which business, of course, is going to look at this uh, landscape as being a strategic landscape that it can press its own interests on. I think that the bigger and more profound question is the one that you point to, which is the question, in a sense, that I think is one of the motivating questions of our book, which is, here's how we would put it. Can the U.S. credibly commit to use its powers only up to a certain point and not beyond that point? and i think that this is something which is a uh has been actually a source of us strengths in the past is the fact that the united states for all of its messiness for all of the problems with its system it actually has the rule of law and this means that there are certain things that the us can commit uh, at least in principle not to do But the more that the United States is tempted to push that envelope, uh, the more that the United States is going to be incapable of taking advantage of that And one of the uh, side effects of the way in which the system has grown is that if you're trying desperately to uh, battle off these immediate threats, which keep on coming at you and multiplying, you don't necessarily think about the uh, long-term consequences for the US's reputation, for the US's ability to say, actually, we're not going to do this. And this is uh, reflected, for example, in what Abe said about the incapacity to roll back sanctions once they have been uh, imposed. There are many, many other ways in which the United States fundamentally finds itself incapable of restraining itself. That's going to become, I think, a very important issue over the next couple of months as we decide what to do uh, about the revelations that uh, Huawei and uh, SMIC have uh, apparently managed to figure out ways to uh, produce semiconductors that the, US, uh, that the US thought that they would probably be incapable of producing. And it faces uh, the US with a somewhat difficult choice. Does it go ahead with a much more comprehensive set of measures designed to prevent Chinese companies from acquiring these technologies, in which case it will observe uh, be achieving its security interests, but it's also going to uh, certainly rise, uh, raise up the fears in China and in other countries that the United States is effectively going to uh, be uh, out of control. Or alternatively, does it let this ride, in which case it uh, potentially uh, provides a technological advantage to a rival and to an adversary who can obviously do terrible things uh, in Taiwan if and when it believes that it has the capacity to do so. So so I don't think Abe and I, we are not in the hot seat, thank God. We are not making those kinds of decisions. But it does give you some sense of the trade-offs and the ways in which these trade-offs are affected by the uh, US incapacity to credibly commit itself to structures, which would really reinforce uh, Yellen's message here. And uh, that, I think, is an important uh important aspect of US strategy which has to be considered when the US begins to start taking seriously about what its doctrine of economic st- statecraft ought to be. And and if I could just raise like a
2: third concern which is you know everybody i think quickly goes to the Trump steel tariffs national security you know, this is just Brutal protectionism. There was this funny, you know, Canadian that they had their cars and the Transformer Bumblebee was going to, you know, ravage the United States or whatever. So I think that can happen. You can have the kind of the seepage from the national security of the economic. But in, in addition to the point that Henry was just making about that we could overuse this, the other thing is we don't even understand how these tools, when they're used, what the response can be on the other side. And I think. The Huawei example is really important because here's a case where we don't have a competitor. You know, we sold off all of our competitors. This isn't some hidden, you know, thing where we're trying to promote Nokia. You know, it's like that really that's the story. You know, it's a story where we're worried that they would create a surveillance tool that would, you know, basically function over the globe and we're out there trying to, you know, destroy it, basically, the United States government. And for me, What's so um, important to think about is that how provocative that action is. Ima- imagine a Chinese government set of policies went and said, we're going to destroy the New York Stock Exchange because it's a really powerful global tool for the United States. You know, when, when you target another country's hub, they're kind of a, a you know, global firm Yes, it it is. I think Yellen is being completely honest of what she's saying, but that doesn't mean that it's still not provocative vis-a-vis China. So there, I don't think it's not a threat about our networks being attractive. I think people will still be using U.S. banks. I think the U.S. still has many firms, you know, that are very attractive. But in the dynamic that it creates with another great power, um, there's no real strategic doctrine. How should we think about this? How should we? When should we? Restrain ourselves. When should we use it? And and I think that was a case of we're seeing it play out in real time of you know people acting in a crisis and trying to solve a problem uh, and then moving down a path that could spiral.
3: Yeah. Thanks for bringing up the case study of of Huawei and just that to me suggests that a part of economic statecraft and and part of your story as well is the kind of agreements between the US and the EU on data transfers and surveillance generally, do you have thoughts on the kind of coordination between economic actors generally and um, the privacy folks moving forward in terms of how the, the kind of economic doctrine needs to align with different aspects of like US security measures? So
1: this talks to our previous book of Privacy and Power, which, as Abe said, is the Uh, inadvertent parent of the uh, project that we're now engaged in because we started looking at these uh, questions. And as Abe said, we just saw that there were all of these networks which seemed really boring and functional and people weren't paying attention to them, but were in fact becoming the locus of power struggles and uh, the rest for us and for our careers as uh, public commentators as history. Uh, What I would say, I think, is that The uh, dilemma that the United States faces here is that it is really hard for the U.S. uh, to give the kinds of strong guarantees that would really solve the problems that it faces with Europe. So we have seen another agreement being struck. Uh, I think that uh, there are not a huge number of people who are particularly confident that that agreement is going to stand the test of time. Uh, Max Schramms uh, is gunning for it, and uh, there's going to be another ECJ decision. And uh, if I were a betting uh, man, I would not be laying uh, long odds on the uh, ECJ deciding that, yes, this agreement, which differs in detail, but not in profound and fundamental structure from previous agreements, I don't think that the ECJ is going to be particularly happy happy with it. So I think that what we could see But this would require a a very different US approach and also would be uh, very difficult, I think, given uh, profound European nervousness about the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and all of the things that we are familiar with as a result of that. I think that uh, you would have to see a much deeper form of legal integration between the EU and US in which Europeans fundamentally had some degree of genuine privacy rights under US law, and obviously there would have to be some reciprocity involved in that arrangement. This is something which I think would be a very, very difficult pill for the uh, intelligence community uh, to swallow. Uh, we saw, I think, in, uh, you know, so we, we describe it in the uh, book, how it is that uh yeah, you know, when you when you see the uh, former head of the NSA, Michael Hayden, somebody uh, raises it, uh, it's uh, Orrin Hatch, as I recall. Somebody raises the uh, prospect of why don't we give privacy rights for foreigners? And uh, Hayden describes his contempt for this ridiculous suggestion. Uh, more or less, the Fourth Amendment does not apply to uh, non-U.S. citizens, so to hell with their privacy rights as far as Hayden is is concerned. It is game on if U.S. interests are at stake. I think that is a perfectly comprehensible uh, motivation if you are somebody in the intelligence community, if you have been trained, if you have grown up with that particular set of values, but it is not a set of motivations which are going to be compatible with the kind of deal that might really allow the EU and the U.S. to uh, cooperate together in a deeper sense on uh, these issues. And instead, uh, instead of the current arrangement, which uh, obviously there's a lot of uh, informal alignment that happens between the U.S. and different uh, national intelligence agencies in Europe. Uh, But uh, this is uh, perpetually under legal threat and under political threat as well, because nobody likes to see their uh, privacy being invaded by foreign countries.
2: You know, I agree completely with Henry. Uh, The only thing I wonder about is that, you know, the Hayden quote was, you know, he was very focused on 9-11 and uh, this this threat of terrorism. And I think right now the national security focus has shifted towards Asia and to, to, to China in particular. And so you could imagine a rethink where people say, you know how do we create uh, a system that pr- promotes confidence that you're not just basically that there's a rule of law in global information, uh, systems and and you could imagine the U.S. government saying we are going to uh, basically legalize pledges that were made under presidential kind of directives, turn them into law, and say you know amongst I don't know NATO partners or you know you could, you could create a group of of people where you guarantee these these kind of rule of law for information in a way to stand up as an alternative to China where where the system is just it's it, it does have more surveillance threats. I think there's often this like, well, the US is just like China. It's like, no, it's not just like China. We still have all these legal processes that are in place to make sure that there's not just rampant abuse of how information is used. But I think the more that we could create constraints on our ability to do that and to show that to the world, then the better off we would be and the more persuasive it would be um, in this kind of competition between systems. And so. My plea would be, hey that that perspective was more about global terrorism, but really we have a different one now, and we can imagine a world where creating a Western set of uh, privacy guarantees would help us in our national security
3: right and I mean, this speaks to the kind of meta conversation of whose world are we building and you know China would would argue that it's again kind of a, a rigged world. How do you see the international organizations or um, international regulations working into this? Do you do you think that there is a role to be played by a larger overseeing mechanism that might be kind of intrastate, or is it really incumbent and is the impetus on the US to kind of self enforce and create these rules and and show the international community that it will be interacting in this way?
2: So, I mean, I think fundamentally these powers that we're talking about are unilateral powers. You know, it's whether the U.S. or China or the European Union uses them. They are using kind of domestic legal authority to have transnational or global consequences. I don't think there's going to be a you know a P five uh, consent to using economic coercion. That you know, I think that would is is unworkable. Um, but I do think that there is a role for international organizations, and we're already seeing that. so the the most um, clear development was the g seven um, in their meeting in Japan in the spring, they set out kind of a cooperative economic coercion response framework. And the idea was if members of the g seven are threatened, that they would uh, coordinate together to respond to that. And it was clearly, a Japanese initiative that was trying to push back against potential Chinese economic coercion. But I think on a broader level, what I think is the most important is to have um, a set of of kind of legal conversations uh, at the international law level. So this could be in working groups at the UN, not not about P5, but just, you know, in like a committee on economic coercion where people come up with the ideas of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. There's there's no the way you're going to be able to you know constrain the United States, China, or the European Union perfectly. But you can create uh, a more accountable, transparent, and political conversation that creates um, you know discipline on actors that overstep. And right now, I think that in many of the actors, they don't even know they haven't fully thought through what the parameters should be. So I think. Um, Having those kinds of legal dialogues at the international level and in international organizations can help flesh that out, and it would help the national actors as they're using these tools to think through, okay, what is responsible use and, and where should we draw the line?
1: Just to emphasize the last thing that Abe has said, I think is super duper important, which is that it really is when you're confronted with these questions, when you're talking to outsiders, to people in different systems, that you really do begin to think about your own system in a different way, and what your interests are, and what kinds of things you should or should not do. And uh, that conversation, it may be happening in very off-the-record ways right now, but certainly there isn't much in the way of public evidence of that conversation happening. having consequences if it does exist.
3: So I want to end by, and I know that this is not something that you had time to address in this book, but perhaps the the victims of the economic warfare. So obviously your story is about the, the major wielders of this weapon, but I'm curious what your sense of the downstream effects of, for instance, economic coercion, or statecraft is. For instance, for sanctions, you can kind of trace, you know, this is one person who's designated, you can't um, have interaction with that person. But of course, the bigger downstream effects are countries lacking access to food materials. And you can obviously um, explain, you know, the those are consequences that are needed when the heads of those states make bad decisions, especially, you know, uh, terrorist countries. But um, I'm curious what your sense of the the effects of this weaponization are, and the kind of victims of this warcraft is.
1: Well, this is something we thought about when we were writing the book, and we've got a little bit in the uh, final acknowledgement section where we say, more or less, uh, pretty explicitly. This is a book which is written from the perspective of those that have power. There is another book that could be written, which is uh, equally and plausibly more important, which is uh, written from the uh, perspective of those who have these effects imposed upon them, but are not able to mobilize to defend their interests in the ways that the big powers that we focus on, the United States, uh, China, and the European Union are able to. So I think you could look at this from a variety of different perspectives. First, you could think about this just from the point of view of the consequences of economic uh, weapons for uh, countries which have been uh, severely hit by them. Uh, There is a lot of work being done by my Johns Hopkins uh, colleagues on what is happening in Iran, which I would recommend to uh, listeners to, uh, to, to see. This is important. And also, sometimes the perverse consequences that sanctions can have. So that uh, one of the consequences, if you are targeting the legitimate economy, is that you may empower uh, actors, uh, such as in Iran, the Revolutionary Guard, to take more and more control of what is actually there. And this is something which I think, you know, certainly there are technical discussions around it, But at the extent to which this actually reaches uh, discussions about grand strategy, uh, I'm very, very unsure that uh, people really are uh, systematically integrating these possible effects in. Secondly, you could think about this from the perspective of middle powers, another country which we hardly talk about at all, but which is, of course, important, is India. Uh, we do mention how Indonesia was spooked by some of the efforts of the uh, Biden administration of the European Union uh, in coordination to uh, impose a uh, price cap on oil being exported uh, from Russia. Uh, they, uh, The Indonesian foreign minister suggested that this was something which would be seen by countries such as Indonesia as perhaps the prelude to... Uh, efforts by uh, advanced countries to try and impose these kinds of restrictions on uh, exporting uh, countries which exported uh, basic materials in general, what kinds of worries that might lead to. And uh, you can look, you know, there are many, many different uh, aspects uh, that you could look at this from. We don't talk about this because uh, this is a short book we can own, and we're also talking to the areas where we have particular expertise. Uh, But this is a hugely important uh, set of questions uh, in a sense, the shadow that empire casts, which is something that we don't really talk about, but which we think is uh, fundamentally important.
2: And and I would just add, you know, on the one hand, some of these tools are, are much more targeted than, you know, traditional sanctions. And that is, you know, people have often held that up as a benefit. You know, it's like we're targeting the semiconductor supply chain for advanced AI chips. You know, it's not a you know, a, a universal embargo on China, and so in that way, you know, the, the hope is that these would produce less uh, pain for your average citizen. At the same time, one of the things that we we keep seeing and we stress in the book are just the global economy is so complex, and our our governmental understanding of it is pretty thin. And the, the chance that you could have unanticipated consequences is very high. And so we tell the story of, you know, after the 2016 election, the, the Trump administration goes after an oligarch, like Derek Pasca he has an aluminum empire in uh, in Russia. And so they sanction this uh, oligarch. And then all of a sudden they get panic calls from Limerick, Ireland. And uh, you're like, well, what's going on in Limerick? Well, they have a huge alumina uh, factory there that is a a, a subsidiary of uh, Dairy Pasca's empire and so you know these kinds of interconnectedness you know that basically that that factory in Limerick it supplies most of Western Europe's kind of very specialized aluminum and it was going to shut down the car you know sector in many countries. So that kind of unexpected outcome is one of the dangers of using these tools where people's real lives can then be affected in a way that you you wouldn't have anticipated. Um, similarly, I mean, the, the, the gas pipeline wars in Europe, I was in Berlin last year, and there were many months where there was a real worry that we wouldn't have gas, you know, uh, heating, And so we have to realize that people's lives are being affected by this. What we think of as very high politics uh, warfare, and I I think there's the the, the clearest example, which people don't want to talk about, but is the is the reverberation of the Snowden revelations. You know, it's like we we kind of we try to forget that that was all made public. But if you go to many other countries, you know, it's a very uh, important moment where people realize that this global internet that we created, it's not just about freedom and access and possibility, but it's also about power and that, that that has real consequences and has had effects that we we really need to understand if we're going to use these tools effectively.
3: So to, to extend your analogy of this being the economic equivalent of a nuclear arsenal, I'm hearing that there are many potential little red buttons that could be pushed, and we might not be aware of it. Is that accurate?
0: So one of the
1: uh, best quotes we got uh, from somebody was a former lawyer uh, for uh, Deripaska's company, Roussel, who referred uh, pejoratively to the uh, US approach to economic warfare as the what does this button do approach. And I think that's probably somewhat unfair. Uh, There is a lot of uh, data, a lot of care, which goes into, for example, the uh, decisions of Treasury, who to target, what to do, and so on. But you've got to remember, again, that this is a spectacularly under-resourced branch of the U.S. government, when you compare the vast amounts of money that go into the Department of Defense uh, to the uh, pitiful uh, trickle of funding and resources that goes to uh, these questions of economic security, you really uh, come to the conclusion that there's something fundamentally wrong with the U.S. sense of priorities, especially as these issues have come to the fore. So I think one of the things that we would really press for, and again, this is something where I think there would plausibly be agreement between uh, a lot of people, is if the US is going to do this stuff, it wants to do it right. And that is going to involve a lot of transformation of government structures to make sure that there, that this is not just a uh, small number of harried, overworked people running around from crisis to crisis, but that there is an actual understanding of the world that allows these people to do what they are supposed to do, and ideally does not have too much in the way of unexpected repercussions. And when there are unexpected repercussions, that there are the uh, appropriate means of flexibility that the US is able to... To a change course in a reasonably timely fashion.
3: And is there any sort of red flag for either of you when it comes to this kind of warfare? It strikes me that this is, you know, ambient, ever going in the background. Sometimes it comes to the fore more readily. What would be a sign for you that we are engaged in a kind of point of no return type of economic warfare?
1: I don't know. But I don't think anybody else knows either. And that is part of the problem, that uh, if you think about the uh, world economy, the world economy is an incredibly complex system. For a long time, we uh, pretended that this complexity could be handled by market mechanisms. This was the uh, fundamental approach during the era of globalization, which was that the ideas of people like Friedman, Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman were awesome, that markets could be uh, trusted to look after themselves, either because you believed that markets were capable of Thinking about the future better or because you believed in the uh, fundamentals, uh, notions of economic efficiency or whatever. And now we've discovered that markets have profound national security consequences as well. But these national security consequences are really, really, really difficult to predict in advance. So I think that the best that we can do is to try and uh, sort of increase our economic intelligence so that we have a, as I say, a better understanding of what it is that we're doing, and I think extreme caution when it comes to uh, pressing buttons that look as if they might plausibly be uh, the uh, red buttons that will lead to uh, that will lead to uh, sort of uh, the equivalent of uh, Holocaust or of major uh, consequences in uh, interactions between great powers.
2: And and just to like put a, a nail on the head, there is that the stakes are very high. You know, it's like we have a global economy. That provides so much to the societies of the world. You know, if you think about the number of people that have been lifted out of po- poverty in the last thirty years, you know, it's it's amazing. And that's what's at stake right now. You know, that kind of if we go past a tipping point where economic security overwhelms market interactions, then you could really see a pulling back that would threaten all of that. And so, I think the the, the main point at the end of the book that we're trying to make is to say we don't want to risk all of that. We need to come up with a set of, of kind of guiding principles so that we can save the majority of globalization, even while we recognize that there are these vulnerabilities and threats. Um, and so that's kind of you know, what we're what we're hoping to do in the, the foreign affairs piece Henry mentioned is lay out some of those ideas.
3: Well, that's great. Thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Thanks again for your time and um, looking forward to having folks read.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks again. This was a great conversation.
3: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a lawfare material supporter at patreon.com/lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahawal, And your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
2: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag.